Hello and welcome to Diverse and Inclusive Leaders, the show where I speak with the most inspirational and thought-provoking leaders of today and unearth their unique stories of diversity and inclusion to help inspire, educate and motivate others to make the world a better place. Today, I am delighted to be joined by Mark Lomas. Now, Mark, as many of you probably know already, is the Head of Equality, Diversity and Inclusion at HS2 Rail. Mark and the organization have won numerous awards, including everything from the ENEI Awards for Inclusive Procurement, Innovation with Impact and Overall Public Sector Winner Categories, through to the Best Supplier Diversity Programme and the Women in Rail Top Employers. Mark has delivered himself personally multiple inclusion projects, both in the UK and also internationally. He's had a number of decades worth of experience working from organisations across a wide variety of sectors, everything across from financial reporting, the FS industry, through to the BBC, Sheffield University through to the NHS Clinical Commissioning Group boards and even well-known television broadcasting organisations like ITV. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. And I know that that was a real short snippet um, of your of your career history today, because, oh, my goodness, there's been so many different things that you've done across countless sectors and, um, and even kind of run your own business. And so I think it will be really interesting just for, you know, those perhaps who, who don't know you, um, you know, as well as I do, whether you could just unpick a little bit some of the career background and, you know, ultimately how you came to be where you are today, having won these uh, won these multiple awards in uh, in lots of different areas of diversity and inclusion sure so i guess it's it's a it's a fairly winding road that got to that got me where i am now um, all my background in education was was in music um, i graduated from the juilliard school i'm from bermuda originally and i made my way to, to england i was 19 when i finished university and i, I was set on a sort of career in music and then I sort of found out that the industry operated in a very different way than I was used to. Essentially, it was all about networks, whereas I was always used to auditioning for uh, auditioning for orchestral work, chamber music work, solo work, etc. And as a 19-year-old sort of black kid from Bermuda arriving in the middle of the classical music industry, which is what I was trained in, I had absolutely no network and I found it incredibly frustrating. So I, I used all the skills I had to do music production and a number of other things. And, um, and to cut a long story short, eventually I, I got incredibly fed up. And I thought, right, well, I'm gonna head back to Bermuda for three weeks, take a little, take a little break and, and, and see what I want to do. I think I landed in Bermuda at 6.35 and by nine o'clock that evening, I had a really, really well-paid job and I thought, well, isn't that, isn't that odd? Nothing has changed about me whatsoever, but the way people see my value has changed immeasurably. And that was the sort of the first thing that got me a little bit interested in, in why that was. So I, re I returned to the UK and then um, uh, the team that I was working with, they went off to do some tours and, and my daughter was, was just born and I wasn't going to win that argument, uh, having a, a baby girl and then going off on tour. 
So I decided to uh, stay in the UK and I'd always done summer work for disability charities in, in Bermuda. So um, a role came up with a disability charity and, and I thought, well, I'll do that for, for a couple of months and uh, keep me out of trouble and give me something interesting to do. And, and I sort of as, as I, I, I worked there, there were more and more things I was, I was just a little bit confused about why they did things a, a certain way. And I was probably a bit of a pain in the backside to my regional manager at the, at, at the time. And um, one day she said to me, do you know, I've, I've got something that I think you, you, you should go to. I said, yeah, okay, sounds like a jolly day off work to me. Brilliant. Yeah, no disagreement for me. And she sent me to uh, their national EDI steering group meeting. Uh, and I attended that that meeting. And I pointed out some things that I thought that they, they didn't do well and how they could do them differently. Um, the CEO was in that that meeting, as was the HR director. I had kind of no background in in in, in business, and and uh, particularly where where I'm from, we we value direct communication. And after the meeting. Um, the CEO gave me a couple of tips about maybe being a little less direct, but um, but what I said was sensible. That's how I got into diversity, and my experience grew from there. And and yeah, you know, fifteen twenty years later, I, I suppose I, I have what I regard as one of the most interesting DNI jobs in the country, primarily because someone spotted what they thought was uh, was a bit of talent, a way of thinking and presented me with an opportunity. So if there was a, if there was a critical moment in my career path, um, that was it. Wow, what a story. I, I love it. From music production and Bermuda through to being classically trained, which are, I, by the way, really appreciate talented musicians and know how much dedication that can take, having been in been in bands in in early years but um you know through to through to where you are i mean what a journey um, and just picking up on a piece that you said there mark if you don't mind when your when your then ceo and hr director had kind of said um you know wow you know kind of really really direct and and given you um you know this opportunity which is which is wonderful you know talk to me about how you know w- w- was that a cause it seems a rather unusual thing to say hey you're really direct and because of that, we'd love to bring you on as our, our new DNI exec. You know, was it unusual at that time then to kind of have a slightly different mindset and way of thinking in terms of who they had within their management team? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think most people would have said I was pretty rude in that meeting. I won't say what I said. Um, because uh, probably couldn't put it out. But, but, um, <laughs> no, it's fine. Say what you wish. I love it. <laughs> it, it, it was tremendously. It was tremendously honest from 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 my point of view. But after that, you know, I had a conversation with the CEO, and he said, "Look, you know, if anyone else talked to me like like that, probably I'd be firing them." But I, you know, I hear the sense in what you're saying. But there's a difference between what you say and how it lands with with people, and I think. Um, I think uh, looking back on it, we developed what I would describe as something of an informal mentoring relationship. And I was part of that diversity group probably for about um, another year. And then the role sort of came up uh, and I didn't apply. So just before the deadline, the, the HR director called and said, I don't see an application from you. Went, Why? 
well, to be blunt, you know, I've never really thought about uh, applying for it. Half my mind is whether I should go back to music and then yada, yada, yada. And um, to, to be honest, I would just want to do things very, very differently. You know, so if you hired me, it would be because we would do things very differently. And, um, and you know, I, I don't know if that's what you want or not. So they said, well, listen, you know, why don't you, why don't you apply, go for the interviews and see what happens after that. Uh, so I got I got the role and and we set about doing things really quite differently. And at the time, the the charity was running large um, New Deal for disabled people contracts. And uh, part of uh, part of what I did there was have a look at not only how they were engaging with employers, but what contract performance looked like for various diverse groups and and adapting what we did on sort of uh, local in local areas or regional areas. Uh, which had a, a really good impact on, on the contract performance. So it took DNI from a place where um, uh, it was a, about keeping people happy and engaging staff and doing the right thing and, and really made it about bottom line performance. And I think um, I've taken that kind of evidence-based approach through to every other role that, um, that I've done in DNI. And I suppose one of um, one of my frustrations, I suppose, with the with the sector is often people do the same things which, which haven't had any result over 20 years or certainly not the results that they want, but they lack the evidence to know how to adjust it. And particularly um, you know, with, with the role I have at HS2, I, I like to describe it as treating diversity as an engineering problem. You know, you find the point of failure and you fix that point of failure. And the results then tend to speak for themselves they, they change for the they change for the positive but that was a that, that was a, a wonderful introduction to to diversity working at that disability charity and and um, really really learning my craft with an immense amount of autonomy and and, and scope um, and it is the reason as I progressed through sectors that I've ended up where I have it's superb, Mark, that you, I mean, it's, it's the way you talk about diversity, inclusion, belonging, equality is very, it is very scientific in a good way. You know, and I know that you and I are singing from the same hymn sheet here when we're talking to others about the fact that diversity, inclusion and belonging, equality is a strategic priority. It's not a nice to have in any way, shape or form. You know, but also interestingly, you mentioned there working across many different sectors. And, you know, obviously with my, my other hat on with, you know, I guess running, um, you know, still an exec search firm as well as obviously doing the work with Dial. I notice how often organisations like to stick with people they would deem safe in inverted commas within their own sector and that frustrates the life out of me if I'm honest because some of the greatest pieces of innovation are through um, diversity of you know it's diversity of experience right it's diversity um, you know diversity simply means difference and that is also sector yet still even when it comes to often you know diversity and inclusion roles for example people are looking at the same sectors and when you look at your background it's like you've literally that richness richness of experience and clarity that you have when I speak with you, I'm sure must in part, and, and you know, obviously feel free to agree or disagree with me, is that richness of working within so many diverse sectors. You know, you take any of them in their individuality and there's so many similarities. Not that similarity is a bad thing, but is how can you foster innovation when you're all used to working in a very, very similar 
process type of way. You know? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's I think that's exactly right. You know, most sectors have some kind of individual challenges. You know, some nuances. Uh, but essentially, what I've found is um, that the the main building blocks of effective diversity, inclusion, belonging, etc., are pretty much the same. But you can take bits of learning, bits of practice from other sectors which have worked and, and adapted and adapt them. Um, one of the things we've done uh, very effectively at HS2 is introduce something called blind auditioning. Um, which is a recruitment methodology which removes CVs and applications and entirely. Um, it's sort of a skills-based anonymous uh, uh, assessment. And the results for diverse groups are, are superb using the sort of blind auditioning methodology. But that's a methodology that we picked up from American orchestras in the 1970s. When I went to music school, I always had to audition behind, um, behind a screen. And you weren't allowed to wear your shoes when you walked on the stage to start your audition because they could tell the difference between the shoes. And so we, we like to look for methodologies that, that, re, that have produced results, then look at how we can adapt them, what the evidence is. And, it's, and for me, it's about the impact and effectiveness of, of what you do. Now, if you've been running a, running a mentoring program to support promotions for 15, 20 years and you've still got the same makeup of your, of your senior leadership team, well, it's not effective. So find where the point of failure is and, and change it. And um, uh, we've taken that uh, approach with me sort of wherever I went. But in every sector, I find there is um, something useful that you can learn and adapt. And there are plenty of things which you go, well, that hasn't worked for anyone across any of the sectors. So we won't bother repeating what doesn't work. But yes, for me, it's been in incredibly informative. Absolutely. And they say uh, the, the age old adage is, you know, the definition of madness is doing the same thing over and over and expecting uh, different results. But you're absolutely right. I mean, there is just so much transferable knowledge from different sectors. Um, you know, there really, really is. And, um, you know, again, you know, I guess reverting into some of the, um, you know, as you would say, um, you know, looking at methodologies and, and kind of looking at, you know, the, the, the power of evidence when it comes to decision making. I know you utilize a lot of that when it comes to um, supplier diversity, which I think is such a fascinating subject. And obviously we see, you know, in particular over in the States, you have, you know, some of these organizations like, you know, billion dollar round table. And, you know, know when it comes to say UK organizations, um, you know, as well, you look at what HS2 has done and the, um, you know, the framework that's been built is second to none. Um, you know, talk to me a little bit about, you know, what supplier diversity means why it is so incredibly critical for organizations now and you know obviously moving forward yeah i mean i think um for for us it's twofold you know we hs2's strategic goals around skills and employment and involving uh, businesses from around the, the the uk and when you look at the makeup of the construction sector where you know 60 percent of the the work is is done by subcontracting well, you know, you're not going to change the way a sector operates overnight. It's not immediately going to become direct in, in employment as a, as a majority. So how do you foster that? And given the, given the size of, of contracts that HS2 operates, the opportunity was, was really clear. You know, here's, here's an opportunity to put in place an inclusive procurement model 
uh, across all the uh, all the procurement processes, contract management, lifecycle reporting, which has an absolute impact on on what uh, on what comes out the other side. And I think there were. I mean, there were a number of things. It's built into every stage of our procurement process, the pre-qualification, the ITT, or the, the technical questions, contract management, reporting, et cetera. Um, but the most important thing, I, I think, and I'd love to claim this was a stroke of genius, but it really wasn't. It was... Um, Go for it. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was timing. Yeah, so we had a you know large uh, large contracts which are about to to go out the door and um, and understanding how we could leverage uh, you know our procurement power the best and our research indicated that um, you know the difference between winning and losing a major tender could between could be between three and four percent so we deliberately wow. set the the weighting for diversity and skills higher than that. Why? Because that gave the sector a business case for diversity. You, you know, you want to work with HS2, you know, health and safety is critically important. Environment is critically important. And DNI is, is, is part of those HS2 values. And therefore, with a very clear requirement about what we were looking for, the diversity of the workforce, how much you're spending with diverse suppliers, wanting our supply chain to achieve externally verified EDI accreditation, making sure 100% of people are trained in relevant aspects of, of DNI. Um, we were able to be very clear about what we wanted um, and support our supply chain to get there because that's also critically important. We provide digital tools, everything from sort of uh, diversity crosswords and word searches to sort of, you know, more sophisticated digital tools that give you the diversity and socioeconomic makeup of every local authority along the HS2 route at a, at a touch of a button, etc. Um, primarily because it's about delivering the legacy, the benefits for HS2. And that was, that was the way we would do it. And that reaches into our inclusive design approach with our stations and, and, and trains. You know, we want to have the most uh, inclusive, accessible uh, transport service possible. And that starts from the procurement, that starts from the procurement process. Um, and it is where the bang for our buck is going to be. So it is something we were very proud of because... Um, it's very well embedded across the, the program, you know, and we can, we can see the impact that is having all across the sector. It's not just HS2, which are winning um, DNI awards. Um, our supply chain are now starting to win DNI awards for the work they're doing to satisfy our procurement requirement. They're taking what they do for us and rolling it out across other contracts. And we see the sector, Highways England, National Rail, TFL, working with us and we're working together to align those requirements to to create efficiencies for the for the sector so we're we're very proud of our our work in that regard nothing's perfect there's always more to do um but it is part of our story about how that hs2 pound reaches communities up and down the uk and i think for um for other organizations in different sectors you can't always fix things with direct em employment but, you know, you can be really positive, creative, innovative about um, what your organization does and who they spend their money with and how that reaches into different communities. And there are brand benefits to that. There's, current, you know, there's commercial benefits to managing risk and spreading risk across the supply chain. 
um, it's it's innumerable what the the opportunities are. So um, our inclusive procurement model is, is something very very close to our heart, and of course something that we're willing to share with everyone. Um, you know, HS2 is a huge program, but our approach isn't resource intensive. You know, it, it's light touch. It's well thought through. The reporting methodology is is well established, um, and critically, it delivers the evidence we want. At, at, at this point, you know, all major HS2 contracts are outperforming the industry in terms of diverse representation. Um, no mean feat when it's all engineering and construction contracts in, in, in the main. Um, and of course, you know, as the program expands, those challenges will get harder. But the organizations in our supply chain are maturing their DNI approach with us constantly and, and that um, that gives me confidence that in the long term we'll be in a very very good place. There are so many rich juicy pearls of wisdom and learning to be taken from that snippet that you described there um, I know I'm sounding really geeky here but oh my god it is just so interesting getting into the nuts and bolts of all of those different facets and I can hear people kind of asking um, you know the, our, our listeners who we know would be tuning in when they watch and listen to this podcast eventually thinking yes but how is it relevant to me and you mentioned there how transferable all of this is into other industries which I absolutely truly believe that it is and actually reverts all the way back to um, you know the beginning of our conversation here because it is beneficial to communities you know it's great for branding as you say it's a responsible way of spending money that's going to be spent anyway and so wouldn't you rather spend with in simplistic terms here wouldn't you rather spend money with a um, organization that is benefiting local community as opposed to x you know, um, but I wonder just for those individuals and organizations thinking, yes, yes, this is fantastic, but how us, how us, how can others learn from transferring this over into their organizations? Because, you know, as you say, with diversity, and inclusion, and belonging and equality, it's an evolution, you know, it's never going to be perfect. But that's also like saying, you know, we are complete as human beings, we can always learn more. It's an evolution, it's, a, you know, it's, it's a never ending process, ultimately, um, that we always want to get better at. But I just wondered your, your thoughts that I guess on, um, you know, on, on transferable pieces um, that people can be taking. And also, I think, you know, the future of, you know, the future of, of diverse and inclusive procurement, because I truly believe this is one of the many key routes to unlocking true diversity within organizations as a whole. Well, that's right. I mean, I think I mean, we have some publicly available um, case studies on YouTube about SMEs going through our procurement process uh, and the shape of things to come video on, on, on YouTube, which um, very simplistically describes um, what our procurement requirements are. Um, but we're also happy to share our inclusive procurement model, you know, what we ask at the various stages how we're set up to do the monitoring and, and, and reporting. So we're more than happy to more than happy to share to share that. I think I think it is very important for organizations to uh, to consider, you know, where they can make the most impact. And again, this isn't necessarily about applying this to every single uh, every single purchasing decision that, that you're making. It is about where you're going to get the most impact. Where is it? Where is it sensible to to apply it? And critically, what are you trying to achieve? You know, is it innovation? Is it engaging with communities? 
Um, is it the kind of you know spreading your your pound around your 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 customers? Is it is it commercial management of risks so that all of your supply chain or your your contracts aren't sitting with one uh, supplier and if they fail you're in a you're in a real problem? So you know I would advise people to have a look at their business. What is it they want to achieve, and then work backwards uh, work backwards from that point. I think that's really good advice, Mark. And I, I think it's just, I mean, not only is it obviously the right thing to do for humanity, wider business and wider society, but it's also hugely beneficial commercially, which and whatever way you look at it. And, and you know, I guess, as you say, you know, if an organisation is looking to, say, improve its CSR objectives or whatever that might be, actually, um, there is a place at some point within the supply chain in those objectives that can be achieved through, you know, purchasing, you know, the, the, the right goods, right services from those places that would be aligned with those core values. And, um, you know, certainly for us, as I mean, we are a relatively small organization, but work with a lot of large, you know, large corporate organizations. And it's interesting watching, you know, how the landscape has slightly changed in that we're being asked more so now from some of the large organizations about the ownership status, even of our business. You know, are you a minority owned business? You know, do you adhere to these practices and procedures? And, um, you know, whilst I think we, we, with anything, with any small, you know, SME or any, anyone who's listening who, who has kind of a, a small to medium sized enterprise thinking, oh, my goodness, more paperwork. But, um, you know, actually, as long as it's kept relatively simple and straightforward and it's asking the right questions is so incredibly valuable. Because ultimately, that's cash that would be spent anyway if it can come from different places as you put it you know spreading that pound out or spreading that dollar out it is um you know it's the bang for the buck as you put it which i think is just superb yeah and and there are lots of um there are lots of ways for smes particularly um that things can be done in a very low cost way you know um we have smes that work with us and and you know they use smart survey which has uk uh uk servers for for gdpr reasons um, and they use that as a tool to collect workforce diversity where uh, data where they might not have a, you know an old singing old dancing hr system they use various organizations like the supply chain sustainability school who have free e-learning and, and free webinars around diversity and, and inclusion etc um, for suppliers that engage with us you know we we have videos on on why you should do diversity monitoring digital tools like i described before um, things like crosswords and, and games that you can use to engage staff so um, it doesn't need to be expensive for SMEs uh, to, to sort of meet diversity requirements. You can be very creative with it, um, but it's also a huge, huge benefit. You know, you learn about your staff, you learn about what they need, you learn about what's important to them. And I think um, I think that's one of the key takeaways. Um, and some of the SMEs that work with us that gather that information for us, they use that information to win more business. It sets them apart when they're trying to bid for local authority contracts and other things. So it, in that way, it becomes a sort of mutually reinforcing beneficial circle. Uh, and I think, you know, as as uh, the economy goes through changes, as, as organizations increasingly work on the global scale, this is something that you're going to see more and, 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 and more of. 
Mm, absolutely. You are you're so right. I mean, it can be a real game changer looking at this for smaller organizations who ultimately, let's face it, may not have otherwise had a look in when it comes to, you know, especially some of your bigger corporations and things like that. Actually, this is a chance for them to have affiliated with their brands some of those real large global organizations because um, actually they could be, you know, serving other purpose that is not just, um, you know, meeting volume goals or something like that, which is what, you know, honestly, I think, you know, looking back over metrics over the last, you know, 10 or even 20 years, you know, they have um, come a long way. And so, um, no, I absolutely concur. If it's not something organizations are looking at, they absolutely must consider this, absolutely must consider this. And very briefly, um, you know, talk to me about some of the, because I know you mentioned surveys and such like that, which I, I think, you know, again, I mean, obviously, you know, that we did our recent report and you always have the, the naysayers who say, oh, God, not another survey. But actually, and we had that. We were like, no, it's not just another survey. This is so important. And why? But 82 percent. No, we had a chat offline before, but 82 percent in terms of response rate that you had on one of your recent employee surveys, which I wonder whether you could just give us a brief synopsis on, is pretty much I don't want to say unheard of. because That sounds terribly negative, doesn't it? Actually, um, you know, we don't want to presume that lots of workforces here are unengaged. But obviously, it's been a really, really challenging time of late in particular. And I think will be, you know, for for a fair few months ahead, at least. Talk to me about the importance of, of, of surveys. You know, I know you're preaching to the converted here, by the way, with me, obviously. Um, talk to me about that and how that was achieved. Sure. So, I mean, you know, our engagement team has to take a, a lot of um, a lot of credit for their hard work. Um, during COVID, we, we made a very quick pivot to remote and agile working, and we're lucky we have the IT infrastructure to help us with that. But at the core of it, um, you know, the message was around the health and well-being of our of our staff. Um, and everything we do, every sort of employee practice we have, we cut by diversity data, we do the analysis, so we get under the skin of it. And we saw engagement increase. We did, uh, I think, four um, sort of well-being surveys over the, over the period of, of COVID, which culminated in the large employee engagement survey. Um, and that focus on the sort of the health, the well-being, uh, including our staff, making sure that we are taking care of them. Um, has seen our, our engagement scores um, increase dramatically. Um, I think 19% increase, I, I think, is, is what it is. Um, and in the large employee engagement survey, and we, we had 82% response, which is a fantastic response. But one of the questions in there was, you know, choose three words which describe the HS2 culture. Um, and inclusive was the, uh, was the word that was referenced more than any other. So in the word cloud, it's the biggest word, right? Which is, which is wonderful. Um, and of course, there are uh, areas to improve and things to go at. There always are. Um, but that's a real uh, testament, I think, to how everyone across the HR function, our business functions, our leaders, our, our employees are so um, engaged in the organization and understand the efforts that we make around uh, diversity and inclusion. And we're transparent with it. So there's, all, there's, there's often lots of good news, but there's, there's also areas for improvement. And we're very, very, very open uh, about that. And I think that's part of the reason um, that's part of the reason that, that we got to where we, we did. Um, a number of years ago, we, we, we ran a, a similar survey, probably as far back as four years ago. 
And the feedback was a little different then. It was um, one of the things people identified was that um, they didn't really have much of a relationship with the senior leadership. They didn't know how they felt about diversity. And we took, we took those, that bit of data. And again, we looked around at what worked, what people were doing. And we designed a reverse mentoring program, um, uh, which has, it's a phenomenal success for for us. In fact, it's completely oversubscribed. Every year we have far more people who want to get involved than we have senior leaders to do it. Um, But it is a a KPI for our senior leaders. It it is a mandatory requirement of being a senior leader at HS2. And and, um, I I, I like to, because we match very, carefully across directorates, uh, across characteristics, et cetera, it accelerates the process of, of accepting difference and learning, uh, learning from, from difference. You know, if you just rely on evolution for people to sort of meet each other and engage each other, you might be waiting a long time. It kind of puts it in the revolution space. And, and, um, and again, this year, we've had to pivot that program. So we now have a sort of an, an online platform. People often do, they do their reverse mentor meetings online. But we've also created through Teams a, a reverse mentoring uh, sort of notice board, if you like, where people can put in their actions, share their learning. And, and again, the engagement, it's been fantastic. And I think, you know, that, that again, just links back to our evidence-based approach. You know, we don't we don't design programs or training uh, just for the sake of it. We look at those data points across recruitment, promotion, talent, retention, um, engagement, and we design specific programs um, which uh, have the ability to deliver improved outcomes. And we measure the impact and effectiveness of those, and then we adjust them. So, um, you know, I always like to say in, in my job, the, the good news is lovely and I love the good news. Um, but the bad news is far more helpful. So if I understand what the bad news is, then we can fix it. And, and that really that really is the, the bedrock of our approach. It was really well articulated there because when it comes to good news, bad news, someone once told me, a mentor actually once told me, every piece of feedback you get is a gift take it as a gift and look you know we're human beings no one likes to always deal with negativity or challenges but ultimately without that we are never going to learn and we never are going to succeed and um you know as you say and i you know the you know the the state of play with with businesses corporations you know different types of organizations these days is there are few places to hide everything is such a digitally transparent world almost that actually you know how much do you have to lose by being truly honest and open about things um you know i think the day that someone or an organization says hey we've made it now we're perfect when it comes to diversity and inclusion it's like no you're not um you know (laughs) there is always more to do right and i'm sure guys and girls have had your challenges with hs2 and everything like that but ultimately um you know i'm sure you, you you do a huge amount of this when it comes to you know balancing up risk versus reward and procurement and such like but you know you look at the rewards that come come out of not only diversifying um procurement really putting some you know 
real strong metrics against it, which is really brave, you know, as well. I still, I still think some organizations and some individuals, and I'm sure you're thinking, hmm, yes, I know a few of those, um, still think, oh, yeah, this is going to happen organically, you know. It's, <laughs> but no, it won't. <laughs> We've been saying that for years. Come on. <laughs> the time is now. But, uh, yeah, no, some, some, some really, really good points. Though. And I, I mean, you know, concur, concur again. Um, you know, I, I, I do feel, you know, you and I simply, you know, we are preaching to the converted here because I'm agreeing with everything that you're saying. And, <laughs> and sometimes I think, oh, but I should challenge more. But actually, I'm like, yeah, but I agree. I agree. I agree. <laughs> um, but it is true. It's, uh, you know, that honest, authentic, transparent approach, because look, you know, people are people, is people are going to be critical. But at the end of the day, you know, when it is there, um, you know, black and white, and you can see those metrics starting to move, or as you say, with programs like reverse mentoring, which are emotionally incredibly fulfilling as well, they really just do expedite that process. And we can't afford to wait for it to just happen over time because frankly we could be waiting a very long time indeed that's right <laughs> good no way um before we wrap up mark because i could talk to you all day about all of this great stuff and you know we must get you back again for for, for more um talk on on other juicy subjects around diversity and inclusion because i think procurement is one in particular that i just find so fascinating but I'd love us to go into a quick lightning round, of which I'm going to give sure. you 30 seconds, 30 seconds only, quick fire uh, round to answer each of the next questions. I'm going to start with the hardest one first as well before we summarise for today. Um, and that is, what is your secret to success? Disruption. Yeah, look at the evidence, be disruptive. Um, if something isn't working, just fix it change the process, change the way the decision is reached, but change it. Training isn't going to change anything. Change the actual process. So I think process disruption would be my, would, would be my takeaway on that one. Oh, I love that. No one has ever said disruption before to that question. Absolutely brilliant. I'm also wondering now, thinking back to the time when you were interviewing with that first CEO in the story, <laughs> was that the kind of thing that you said? Because clearly being different does work. It's a plumbing superpower. Superpower. Great, great answer, though. Um, and, you know, I, I'm sure there's been many, you know, heroes and sheroes, as we often call them, throughout your career and indeed your life, from, you know, music through to um, through to now. Um, which are some of those key heroes or sheroes or inspirations that have stood out for you along the journey? Great. Um, well, I mean, I'm sure everyone says this, but um, I will. I'll, number one, I, I think I'd have to pick my mother. She's, she's just me and her growing up. Um, uh, my friend's nickname for her was the Dungeon Master. So you can um, you, you can imagine she she would put me through my paces. Um, uh, yeah, and I was an, I was an unruly kid too. So, but she kept me in line. So, um, so I, I think I think definitely um, watching her and her her career you know the uh the sacrifices that that parents make for their children the hard work that they that they put in certainly that instilled in in me the the feeling that um if you're going to fail at something that's fine but um make sure you you failed because you put in every effort and you couldn't do it 
not not that you didn't put in enough effort. I think number that would be one. In terms of my career, I would say that um, that regional manager Sue Rosler that I had at um, that I had at, uh, at the disability charity that I worked for, uh, she would have to definitely be uh, a hero of of mine. Listen, I wouldn't be talking to you if it wouldn't wasn't for her, right? That was the critical incident that changed the trajectory of, of, of my career path. So, so, so here I am. And, and, you know, I've met some really wonderful people all across the, all across the DNI and business spectrum. But I think those people that uh, take, their, take their time to help others, for me, that, that's, in, that's incredibly important and, and you know, I can think of a range of, of people across my life that have that have done that, including um, including one security guard when when I was at the Juilliard School, and I'll never kind of forget what um, what, what she said. With uh, everybody gives you advice, just pick the sense from the nonsense, and you'd be all right. So I like that line. That is a fabulous quote. Fabulous quote, and it's amazing, isn't it? Without kind of going deep into some kind of psychotherapy session here but it is amazing how much memories instances feelings from a very short snippet of a conversation really stick with us and resonate and can impact very greatly some of the outcomes um, and so thank you very much for for sharing those and I love the piece about your mum as well um tough love hey but yeah. it's uh, it's about it is about the, you know, the, the, the working hard and trying your best it's uh, it may sound a cliche but it's always one that I remember from my father who always says as long as you try your best yeah nothing else really matters <laughs> um, and finally I wonder if you could go back in time and give the the young Mark, the unruly Mark, who, as you described him to start with, maybe did give your mum a run for her money and was pretty outspoken in a good way, of course. I wonder if you could go back in time and give the young Mark advice when he was younger or someone who's in a similar situation about to embark on something and they're really not quite sure what comes next. What would you say? I think I would say two things. Um, number one is um, it's going to work out just fine, I think. Um, and the other is persistence overcomes resistance. So just keep going. You knock on enough doors, you wake somebody up. So, um, yeah, that's, that's, that's what I would say to my younger self. Uh, as 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 well as maybe some other advice not for this podcast <laughs> <laughs> we can save it for later let's take yeah. that one offline <laughs> absolutely brilliant absolutely brilliant resilience it is absolutely i mean i think it is it's making for some of the most successful people i've spoken with um mark thank you ever so much for for being here today you've been super Superb, absolutely superb and um, true to form I always give a very brief summary but I don't know if I can cram it in quick enough now at the end so what I will say is I've learned a lot from this podcast and I really hope that everyone else has as well I think there's so much incredible transferable knowledge here not only from you know Mark you kindly sharing your personal experience and um, you know some of those leadership lessons that frankly are relevant to all 
whomever you are, whoever is listening into the podcast um, today. But also, um, when it comes to some of the wider objectives of organizations, actually starting, not just starting with, but really embedding inclusive procurement and supplier diversity into the fabric of what it is that you do really can make some of the most profound differences that you can see. And it certainly is, um, you know, a key trend that, you know, I do not see going away anytime soon. Actually, I think it you know, will be a staple of diverse and inclusive businesses in the future. But I think some of the pieces that really stood out were, were, Mark, when you asked some of these, you know, some big questions, which I think are, um, you know, organizations, I hope, from the back of this podcast should be thinking themselves. Where is the biggest impact that um, procurement and inclusive supply chain can have within your organization? What are the strategic objectives of your company? Because by looking at those wider strategic objectives, you can you know, often, you know, not even, you know, in, in a really complex way, sometimes switch out for other more inclusive organizations. Thus, it's mutually beneficial. It's not a zero-sum game. This is a win-win situation. Um, you know, and then also finally, the measurable metrics. Um, my goodness, it it might sound dry, but I could talk about metrics all day long because and, and, and I know a lot of you are going to be thinking, oh, yes, I've heard that age-old adage, but what gets measured gets managed. It is so, so true. Be brave, put your money where your mouth is ultimately, and make sure you accelerate and expedite that process because through things like reverse mentoring and strategic objectives like that, they benefit all. And ultimately, it's about the future generations of leaders. It's not just about where we are right now at this point. And, um, you know, finally, that... That, that move, which I think was kind of almost interwoven throughout the podcast, Mark, was this move from evolution to revolution, um, you know, which I just think is superb, superb, real great motto uh, into next year. So thank you again for joining me on the show today. I know I've kept you a little bit longer than I was meant to. So thank you and apologies. <laughs> Absolutely fine. My pleasure. Anytime. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Mark. My name is Leila Mackenzie Dallas, and you've been listening to the Diverse and Inclusive Leaders podcast show brought to you by Dial Global. You've been listening to the superb Mark Lomas today from HS2 Rail. Um, if you'd like to find out any more information or if you missed anything from the podcast, don't worry because you'll be able to check it out on our show notes online. You can download the podcast on Apple, Spotify, your favorite podcast app, or visit us directly at www.dialglobal.org forward slash podcast. See you again very soon.